in our pursuits of God, we have a tendency to become distracted by ourselves if we are not careful. Often we approach God as if He is at the top of a ladder and we are climbing up rungs of a ladder in order to get to God or to earn a status or position before God. And thankfully, as Christians, as followers of Christ, we believe in the Word of God. We recognize that we don't have a ladder to climb to God, but we have a relationship to be received with God. Earlier, this is... Uh, the truth that I think the author of Hebrews was uh, pointing to when he reminded us as followers of Jesus to fix our eyes on Jesus, to center our focus on Jesus. And any time in our religious efforts or our even pursuit of God, any time that we lose sight of fixing our eyes on Jesus, we are in danger of a me-centered faith, a me-centered Christianity, or a me-centered religion. And this is a false way of thinking. This is a, a false uh, belief. This is a false Christianity that Paul was addressing in his letter to Christians in Colossae. Colossians chapter 2, where we read about a false teaching that was prevalent, a false teaching that emphasized far too much Religious outward attempts or efforts. A religion that had drifted away from a Jesus-centeredness to a me-centeredness. And if, if Christians in that day could fall into the trap of this me-centered outward religion, then we know that we are certainly susceptible to this as well. And the antidote to this me-centered practice of our faith is Faith in Jesus. In fact, we see in God's word this morning the beautiful truth that faith in Jesus destroys pride and generates freedom. Faith in Jesus destroys pride and generates freedom. Let me invite you to open up God's word with me to the New Testament letter of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2 as we see this truth, this incredible truth for us, this freeing truth for us in our pursuit of God Conveyed. Colossians chapter 2, I'll begin reading in verse 16. And there God's word reads this way. Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Church, according to the word of God, Jesus offers a relationship that is better than a religion of rules. Jesus offers a relationship that is better, far better than a religion of rules. Perhaps you have heard people make the statement that Christianity is not a religion, but a relationship. And there's certainly truth to that distinction. And I don't want us to get bogged down in in that distinction, but the reality is that The laws, even the laws and and these practices that were given to God's people, given to God's people of Israel some time ago, were, were laws that were meant to be obeyed, meant to be embraced, meant to be practiced, but in and of themselves, they were never designed to save people. They were never designed as steps for people to climb up or to walk up in order to pursue a right relationship with God. 
right relationship with God has always come only by God's grace and our belief in Him, our receiving Him in faith. Indeed, our status before God is not dependent on the observance of rules. Your status before God is not dependent on the observance of rules. And this is meant to be good news for us. This is good news for us. But we have a difficult time capturing this. We have a difficult time understanding this. Because this is not the way that we operate as people in any other realm of our lives. We are used to a strictly... Reward-punishment concept, a reward-punishment design that is directly associated with our actions. Think of children in school. If they work hard enough, if they succeed in their classes, they may be put in honor classes. Think of those that devoted themselves. If they can simply succeed in their training, in in their education, then they can have the career of their choice. If someone succeeds and excels in a job position, then they may be rewarded with a promotion or a raise. If our children disobey us, we punish them. If they obey us, uh, then we reward them. In fact, every other major religion of today operates by this system. We only obey Allah well enough, then we may enter paradise with Him. If if our conduct is good enough in this life, then we may be reborn as something better, in a better situation, in a better position on this earth. Or if we suppress our desires enough, then, then we may reach the state of nirvana or bliss, as one world religion teaches. These are teachings of major world religions around the world. And though many act as if Christianity offers by these same practices, by the same outlook. Nothing could be further from the truth. The reality is that we've all fallen short, that none of us have lived up to the standard, that none of us are able to climb this ladder up to God in order to be right with God. Rather, we receive a relationship through Jesus. But even so, these religious laws and these religious practices that were given to God's people, that were given to descendants of Abraham were meant to teach things. They were meant to teach things about who we are and about who God is. And they were meant to anticipate further spiritual truths that would unfold in God's grand story. The Mosaic law foreshadowed the goodness of Christ. The Mosaic law foreshadowed the goodness of Christ. It anticipated the coming of Christ. It anticipated the fulfillment of Christ. The Mosaic law... Mosaic covenant, this covenant that God had made with His people through Moses is a covenant that we are no longer under as people today, for we are under a new covenant through the bloodshed of Jesus Christ. And this is what the author of of Hebrews was conveying in chapter 10, verse 1, when he wrote, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And for this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. In other words, these dietary laws, and Paul references these here in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or what you drink. These dietary laws certainly probably had uh, ramifications for the health of God's people in those days. But even beyond that, 
far greater than that. They were meant to teach people the difference between pure things and impure things. Ultimately, foreshadowing the purity that would only come before God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God's people were to observe and to practice many religious festivals. A reference here to a a new moon celebration, a monthly celebration when God's people would come together and make sacrifices to God and celebrate God. They were meant to observe these things in various ways, certainly to teach things like humility and reverence and importance of approaching God and, and reverence in our worship. But ultimately, they foreshadowed the, the greatest sacrifice, the, the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus on behalf of His people that we might be reconciled to God. And You read here of the Sabbath day, a day of rest that was given to God's people. Ultimately foreshadowing the rest that we as followers of Jesus Christ can only receive through a relationship with God in Jesus. Jesus has come. The Savior has come. The one to whom all of these other things pointed has come. These are a shadow of the things that were to come, Paul writes in verse 17. The reality, however, has come in Jesus Christ. The Savior has come, the one to whom all of Scripture points. The one to whom all of the laws and prophecies anticipate His arrival. The central character of God's Word, Jesus Christ, has come. And He has offered forgiveness. He has offered reconciliation. He has offered life to those who put their faith in Him. And for this reason, Jesus could walk along the road, the road to Emmaus after his resurrection from the dead, encountering two religious folks concerned about the events that had just unfolded. And he could take time to explain to them how all of the scriptures ultimately pointed to him. Folks, we don't climb a ladder to be right with God. We don't get right with God through A me-centered approach that is all about outward religious acts and observations. No, we only receive a right relationship with God because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, has paid the price for us, for our salvation. Jesus has come to offer us a relationship with God Almighty by His grace. And the appropriate response to Jesus Christ is to embrace Grace. Embrace God's grace. Rules don't lead to salvation before God. Certainly we obey the Lord and we stand on the truth of God's word and we devote our lives to, to honoring the Lord, but not an approach that allows us or could ever achieve for us salvation on our own. We simply devote our lives to Christ because of His great love for us. He has provided for us on the cross of Calvary. We must repent of any me-centered approach to, to knowing God, to obeying God, to living for God, and embrace a Jesus-centered mindset that receives the grace of God and lives in light of it. Are you walking and living, practicing pursuits of God that are solely based on a me-centered approach, on what I can do, what I can accomplish, what I can overcome, what I can be, or are you living a Jesus-centered faith that receives the grace of Christ and lives in light of Him? Paul, the writer of this very letter, 
tells of a day in his own life, in fact, much of his own life, in which he was believing that he was right before God because of his outward religion, his outward practices, his outward acts of devotion, allegiance to God, but acts that never never had affected his heart. Heart had never been changed. And he describes the time when he encountered the grace of God as displayed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he records that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 14 and following, as he writes to young Timothy, and he says, The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that, de- that deserves full acceptance. He writes, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example of those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Folks, God saves us by his grace. He offers a relationship, a restored relationship through Jesus Christ with the almighty maker of heaven and earth. And we simply... Receive that relationship through faith by embracing the the grace that God has displayed on us. Folks, faith in Jesus destroys pride and generates freedom. Yet religious pride is a mark of the false teaching that was evident, that was being taught, that was being proclaimed, that was infiltrating Christians in Colossae. And we'll see now as we continue in God's Word in Colossians chapter 2 that spiritual arrogance is unwelcome in Christ's church. Spiritual arrogance is unwelcome in Christ's church. There's no place for it. Look back at Colossians chapter 2, picking up in verse 18. The Word of God reads, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. These false teachers proclaiming a false humility, living in light of a false humility, which is really no humility at all. Like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they were puffed up. Advertising these outward Expressions of their faith and even proclaiming that they had received certain visions from God that were reserved for a special group of people, a spiritual class of the elite, a special position, a special authority, a special privilege reserved only for those who who could achieve it. Folks, this is not biblical. This is not in accordance with teachings of Christ. This is not consistent with the message of Scripture that clearly proclaims that all have sinned. Every single one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 3 verses 23 and 24. We know from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And this is not from ourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Folks, there is no room for boasting in the body of Christ, for none of us have entered into the body of Christ by our own doing 
but only because of the grace and the love of God as displayed through Jesus. So let's ask God's people, as those who have gone from death to life, as those who have gone from hopeless to with eternal hope through Jesus, let's fix our eyes on Jesus and His victory. Fix your eyes on Jesus and His victory, on what He has done, on what He has accomplished for us and applied to us by His grace. If you've ever played a sport, and any sport that involved a ball, or a ball and a bat, or a ball and a racket, think of baseball and softball, tennis, racquetball, uh, perhaps golf we could put in that category, uh, others as well, ping pong, anything uh, like that, then you were probably told countless times as you were trying to learn that sport, whether by a coach or an instructor or a parent, to keep your eyes on the ball. Keep your eyes on the ball. Watch the target. The success or your potential success in any sport that involved a ball was at least in part due to you watching that ball. In a similar way, our success as followers of Christ, in order for us to be faithful followers of Jesus, we cannot be me-centered in our approach to our faith. We must fix our eyes on the object of our faith, which is Jesus Christ. The one who reigns victorious. The one who has accomplished our salvation for us. The one we read about last week in the previous verses. and Backing up to verse 13. The one who forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Folks, let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the perfecter, the pioneer of faith, the one who reigns victorious, the one who defeated sin, the one who conquered the grave, and the one who decisively overcame Satan. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. And as we do, we will see that there's no room for legalism within our faith. There's no room for a system of believing that says that the more we do, then the closer we are to God. The closer we are to a right status with God. No, faith in Jesus destroys pride and generates freedom. Faith in Jesus destroys pride and generates freedom. And we see the, the source of that freedom in the final verses of this chapter. So look back with me at Colossians chapter 2, picking up in verse 20. Paul writes, Since you died with Christ, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. And such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. The practice that Paul is addressing here, that he's speaking of here in these verses, is the practice of asceticism. The practice that that claims that we can be near to God essentially by withdrawing from the world and suppressing the body, seeing the body, seeing material things as evil in and of themselves. Therefore, we must suppress them and remove ourselves from them 
as much as we are able in order to pursue God. But what Paul is saying, according to the word of God here, is that those outward practices in and of themselves are useless. Ultimately, they do not achieve right standing with God. They don't draw us closer to the Lord. But this practice and teaching of asceticism has gained traction at various points throughout the history of the church. In fact, in fourth and fifth centuries, there was a man named Simeon who took his devotion to God very seriously because of it, made efforts to withdraw from the world. And he became tired of people coming to him for spiritual advice and for prayer. So decided to remove him himself from them, to make him no longer available to people, and began living his life on top of a pillar in modern-day Syria. A pillar several feet off the ground with a small platform at, at the top. Simeon began living there, and lived there year after year after year. And for sustenance, boys from the community would come, they'd climb up the pillar, and they would offer him pieces of flatbread, goat's milk, He would survive year after year after year, removing himself from everyone else in order to to pursue a quiet life of devotion to God and suppression of himself. Ultimately, living on top of this pillar for 37 years. Removing himself from society. Embracing the life of an ascetic. But the reality is that these rules, Paul is saying here in Colossians chapter 2, These rules do not free us from temptation. They do not free us from the impulse to sin because they are only outward practices and the real transformation must come by the grace of God as we embrace Christ and our heart begins to be transformed by Him. These do not free us from sin. Rather, freedom from sin only comes through identification with Christ. Freedom from sin and a life Being ruled by sin only comes through identification with Christ. Look back at verse 20. He writes, since you died with Christ. Since you died with Christ. Why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Christ overcame. Christ freed us from the rule of sin. He freed us from the bondage of sin. He has sent His Spirit to live in His people, ultimately showing us how to live a life that is pleasing to us and guiding us along the way. Christ Jesus has set us free from the bondage of sin, from the rule of sin. By His grace, He has freed us and allowed us to be His servants, to be servants of righteousness. Romans chapter 6, verse 18. As people who have been freed from sin and the rule of sin through Jesus Christ, we must beware of spiritual self-confidence. Beware of spiritual self-confidence. We are free from the rule of sin, free from the bondage of sin, but we are still sinners. And we will still struggle with sin as long as we are in this world. Paul wrote of this this struggle in his own life. Romans chapter 7, when he wrote and conveyed the difficulty of Submitting to the Spirit's leading in our life. Of following the way of Christ in our life. The pull between following Christ and following the desires of the flesh. And this is a real struggle, an ongoing struggle, as long as we walk and live on this earth. But by God's grace, we are free to, to submit to Christ, to follow Christ. But let's not put our trust in ourselves, our confidence in ourselves along the way. Because if we do, we will be let down. 
Rather, let's trust in the author of life. Let's trust in the Redeemer. Let's trust in the bread of life and the living water, the great I am, the good shepherd, the one who is the resurrection and the life. Let's trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lord of all. Folks, as people of God, graciously saved by, by the blood of Jesus Christ, let's cultivate Christ confidence. As we walk with the Lord, as we seek to live a life of devotion to the Lord, let's cultivate Christ's confidence. Let's beware of spiritual self-confidence and live a Jesus-centered life that expresses full and total trust and confidence in Him to continue the work that He has already begun in us. Let's trust in the work that Christ has accomplished and in the work that He is doing and in the work that He will continue to do as we pursue Him. Folks, faith in Jesus destroys pride and generates freedom. A freedom to enjoy and to embrace a living, breathing, eternal relationship with the Almighty Maker of heaven and earth. Father, we thank You. We thank You that in Your compassion, in Your mercy, in Your plan, You saw it fit to do for us what we can never do on our own, to accomplish for us what we could, could never do. Lord, and that's to save us by your grace, to restore us into a right relationship with you that we might enjoy an intimate, everlasting walk with you. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the words of of Scripture that remind us to fix our eyes on You and to embrace a Jesus-centered life. Lord, as Your people gathered together this morning in this church, Lord, would You help us to do that? Lord, help us to be followers of Jesus, devoted to Jesus, proclaiming Jesus for Your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen.